0: Hello and welcome to another edition of Brussels sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall Taylor
1: and I'm Jim Townsend
0: and we're so glad you can join us more than a year and a half after Russia's full scale invasion of Ukraine sustained Western support for Kyiv is as critical as ever with the future trajectory of the war remaining highly uncertain continued military aid from both the United States and Europe is essential in enabling further Ukrainian success on the battlefield. Yet commitment to such support is not guaranteed. In our episode in mid-October, amid the chaos in the U.S. Congress, we discussed the staying power of U.S. support for Ukraine. And today's episode will continue that conversation by taking a closer look at the state of support in Europe. A series of recent events has raised concerns about the degree to which European allies will continue to stand behind Kyiv going forward, including the election of a Russia-friendly government in Slovakia, strong polling results for the far-right Alternative for Germany party, and the potential for distraction following the attack by Hamas. To discuss how we should be thinking about these various developments and their potential impact on the Russia-Ukraine war, we're pleased to have Liana Fix, Tara Varma, and Justina Gotkowska with us on the podcast today. Welcome to you all. Thank you.
2: All Welcome. right, we're,
0: we're re-comprising this configuration, which has been so amazing in the past, but in case listeners aren't familiar with our three guests, Liana Fix is a Fellow for Europe at the Center, at the Council on Foreign Relations. She is a historian and political scientist with expertise in German and European foreign and security policy, European security, transatlantic relations, Russia, and Eastern Europe, Tara Varma is a visiting fellow at the Center for the United States in Europe at the Brookings Institution. She focuses on current French defense and security proposals in the European framework, as well as ongoing efforts to materialize Europe European sovereignty in health, economics, climate, energy, and more traditional security fields. And Justina uh, Gotkowska is the deputy director of the Center for Eastern Studies based in Warsaw, Poland. And her work focuses on security and defense issues in Northern and Central Europe, including defense policies and armed forces development in Germany, as well as in the Nordic and Baltic states. So, Justina, I thought maybe we would start with you. You're sitting closest to the front lines from your perch there in Warsaw And maybe just to set the stage in a very broad sense, can you give us your understanding of where we are with the war in Ukraine, what it looks like on the battlefield, or just just a little bit of scene setting of, of where you sense things are on the battlefield and the broader sentiment there in Poland about where things are? Um, starting with Poland, uh, I think we
3: um, the focus on Ukraine uh, has passed a bit uh, because we have had uh, parliamentary elections, very important ones. Uh, before that we had we have had a very um, a fierce campaign. Um, and now uh, I think uh, we will come back to the discussions uh, about uh, further support for Ukraine um, when the new government, a new coalition uh, will uh, come into power. I think that will take uh, a month or so. Uh, and we will have a government, um, I would say early uh, early December. Um, with the uh, um, former opposition parties uh, coming into power. And I think we will have uh, a discussion on where we stand now with the support for Ukraine and where it should uh, uh, further go, uh, because I think that also the discussion about security commitments and assurances um. Uh, former known as ins- security guarantees for Ukraine. This discussion will speed up with, uh, uh, with the end of the, the year and the, the beginning uh, of the other. Uh, and uh, some long-term commitments with regard to military support for Ukraine will be made. Uh, Poland uh, has not entered uh, this uh, discussions uh, so far. Uh, so that will be a topic for the uh, for the incoming government. Uh, Poland has given away a lot of um, uh, ma- military uh, material, in, uh, material in the first uh, year and a half, and uh, t- uh, to be honest, uh, it's it will be difficult to give more uh, equipment and more arms. As um, we have empty stocks and the priority truly is to refill them with uh, as soon as possible uh, with new um, equipment. And only then uh, we will it will be possible to uh, give uh, Ukraine further, for example, tanks, IAVs, um, fighter jets, the, the rest of the MiG-29. Uh, uh, so, but still Poland provides ammunition, provides spare parts, provides repairs for the uh, for the equipment that was given and and um, uh, that comes back to Poland. Um, provides training for Ukrainian soldiers um, and uh, pro- provides fuel. So there is a lot. On, uh, there is a lot of support on a on a lo- lower level. Uh, and then I would say just the dis- d- discussion about further support will uh, be activated again. Uh, I-, I think December, uh, December, January. How a view, um, uh, the front line is viewed from Poland? I think as uh, overall in Europe we see. Uh, that uh the front uh stays uh, more or less at as it as it uh, has stayed for for some some weeks and months uh, there are also attempts from the ukrainian side to um uh to uh, go forward especially in the south but there are also attempts from the russian side to um uh, to um start of uh, offensive operations and to sustain them uh, so uh, we will see i suppose such a back and forth in, in the coming uh, weeks and months and uh, if the everyone here is waiting for the us actually and uh, on the us decision on further support uh, for uh, for ukraine and i think many think that much will depend uh, on on the U.S. decision and and on the uh, on the support from the U.S. as the Europeans, yes, they have speeded up. Yes, they have uh, made um, they have increased their support. Uh, but the U.S. is uh, simply crucial here, and um, um, everyone watches uh, very closely what is happening in Washington now.
0: Yeah, that's really helpful. You put on a lot a lot on the table. But one thing you said really resonates with me, which is there does still seem to be fairly robust political support in most parts of Washington and most parts of Europe. But we do run into a capacity issue. Like you're saying, the Polish stores are empty. And so we can have the political will, but it is still going to be difficult um, from a, a defense industrial perspective to get Ukrainians what they need moving forward. So I think that there's a, I want to dig into that. But before we kind of dive into to some of the issues that you put on the table, Justina, um, Liana and Tara, I wanted to hear from you, both your sense of where Germany and France are, and to the extent that you want to kind of talk more broadly about Europe as a whole as well. But Liana, maybe you first, and then Tara.
4: Yeah, absolutely. I think with the discussion in the United States, there's this argument that we might be perhaps at a general inflection point of Western support for Ukraine. And I don't think this really holds up. I think I would entirely subscribe to what Justina has just said. It's always easy when you look at Europe and sort of often sort of the messy domestic politics of Europe to just throw everything together, recent election results, populism, economic crisis, and to say that Europeans is going wobbly. Europeans are going wobbly. I think Slovakia is probably the most um, dramatic case where we see a decline in, in, in support for Ukraine. But even there, even if Slo- uh, Slovakia stops delivering weapons to Ukraine, that's okay. I mean, the greater concern is what kind of concessions will the European Commission have to make to Slovakia in the same vein that they've given those concessions to, to Hungary before. In Germany, the rise of the AFD, of course, is a concern, but it's not rising because of pro-Russian or anti-Ukrainian sentiments. It's rising because of dissatisfaction with the performance of the current government. We have a new leftist party, which was just founded, launched last week in Germany, which can take votes away from the AFD, but is at the same time similarly supportive of Russian positions. But again, this, those are all opinion polls um, going between 20 and 25%. So it doesn't change the mainstream centrist views. So again, I would say that Europe is actually holding up quite well at the moment. Um, Germany is slow but steady. It hasn't taken a decision on towers um, yet, although the United States has delivered attacks. I think the, the question mark is really that Europeans can't make up for a lack of U.S. military support. There's just just no way how they can. And the question is, if we really have a change in the U.S. position, uh, decoupling of Israel from Ukraine aid and so on, how will that affect Europeans? Will it sort of lead to a, a resignation in Europe or will it lead to resistance and to a spirit of, well, okay, we can bridge a couple of months. We can see how this goes and we have because Ukraine is more important to us It's in our immediate neighborhood. I think that's the crucial point. But in terms of just holding up support in Europe, I think at the moment, Europe looks fairly well.
2: Mara? Yes, I absolutely agree. I was looking actually at data points published by my Brookings colleagues in the Washington Post uh, in the Ukraine index a, a few days ago, and it does show that European support for Ukraine military financial material is holding very strong, when actually U.S. support across party lines, but particularly in the Republican Party, uh, is dropping quite significantly. And in terms of when you look at uh, data points from February 2022, when Russia invaded Ukraine and um, July, basically 15 months later, you see almost a 30 point drop in Republican support um, to, to support to Ukraine. So I think that is very scary. And, and in a way, what we've been discussing um, with all of you until now is to see how how it is possible to separate uh, European support and American support. I think it, it is really hard. The two are conflated and, and Europeans have picked up quite significantly. They have done a lot. The figures by the Kiel Institute show it. that uh, They now provide 50% of the military assistance to Ukraine. I, I don't think we should understate it because it is honestly quite a feat. I really don't think... That would have been possible if you had asked me a year ago, I think Europeans managed to pick it up, but they did pick it up in the backdrop of uh, considerable US political and military leadership. And there is a big question now for Europeans, which is if indeed there is not a a clear withdrawal, but at least a slow retreat by the US in terms of its support, there are two scenarios. Either Europeans think, well, We don't have the capacities to pick up everything, but we do have the ambition to do it. And that's going to need uh, that's going to mean building up defense industrial capabilities. That's one scenario, which is pretty optimistic. The second scenario is actually quite dramatic. And suddenly the Europeans start panicking and think precisely because the U.S. has been providing this political military leadership. If it's not there anymore, then we are certainly not capable of doing it. And then suddenly everything uh, goes down the drain. And and this is where it ties in with the domestic developments. Well, let's say intra-European domestic developments. Orbán has been, uh, Viktor Orbán pri- uh, in Hungary, has been quite the outlier in, in being not so forthright in his support to Ukraine and now criticizing quite openly. But he was one amongst 26 others. And so the 26 others were you know, very united in making sure that there was finally a united European view and a transatlantic view. With Robert Fico now in Slovakia, I'm not saying that the two of them could reverse uh, the European unity, but they can certainly breach it significantly. And I think that is going to be an increasing worry for the Europeans, in addition to being worried about what the American stance is going to be. And that's why I mean, I mean, that's where I mean, it's really hard to separate the European and American view here because What the U.S. does is going to be very contingent on what the Europeans do. In terms of French politics, I mean, there are no local French developments right now. I think what we've seen is a lot of focus on uh, uh, the developments in Israel-Palestine. And we've seen, basically, we've seen it take over a lot of the discussion. This is also an issue of major worry for a number of commentators and policymakers is will we be able, will we meaning Europeans be able to do both uh, and Ukraine and Israel-Palestine actually uh, touch upon very serious area of uh, European security. A few weeks ago, the the U.S. administration told Europeans that actually they were in capacity to do both. What we're seeing now in the past few days is actually the U.S. saying a number of missiles that were directed initially to Ukraine are going to be redirected to the Israel-Palestine um, conflict, which you know is understandable. But there, are, this also means that. In terms of Europe's geopolitical rivals, they're also looking at this very closely and, and making sure that they can do everything they can to divide Europeans, to divide the transatlantic unity, and to wait it out. I think that's also what they're going to do. So I another reason, I guess, for Europeans to be worried.
1: Oh, uh, well, thank you for that. That's that was all three of those presentations were just excellent. And I and, and my my question for you is: you know, in the US, our motivation in a lot of ways to provide uh assistance. To Ukraine, if you were out there talking to the people in Alexandria or in other places of the U.S., uh, you on the street and you ask them about providing assistance, um, they would they would probably frame it more in this in the sense of you know helping these poor unfortunate Ukrainians. They've been invaded by Russia. This is so unfair. This is they should get their sovereignty back. You know, there's there's more of a you know we have to make sure Ukraine wins and Russia loses. That, that's kind of been the general frame. But in Europe, particularly as you get closer to the front lines, there's got to be a little bit of fear mixed in there too. I would think where nations, uh, the motivations would not be just what the Americans are saying, but they've got the added point of, oh my God, we could be next. You know, if you're a, a Balt or Poland, Romania, you know, you would, you have this fear that it's more than just justice. You know, it's actually uh, a fear that uh, if we don't stop him in Ukraine, he could go elsewhere. And that's a that's a powerful motivation. So my my so and and just setting that up, I'm wondering um, if the U.S. D- uh, did uh, go wobbly, whether it's for political reasons or because we were diverting a lot to uh, Israel, and in fact got pulled into the war, you know, or whatever it might be. And so we're not there, you know. That the, what y'all were saying, well, you know that, that you know what the U.S. does is going to really shape what what we in Europe do. Uh, and if U.S. goes wobbly, it would really feed the wobbliness in Europe, too. But I was thinking, but that fear, if you will, among Europeans, you would think that they'd say, well, OK, U.S., if you can't do it, fine. But we're going to double our efforts now because it's not just about justice for us. We're really we think this. we got to stop this guy. We could be next. So my question to you is, is that kind of thing there in the thinking and in the decision making among European nations that? You know, if the U.S. goes wobbly, that doesn't mean we can say, well, then we're going wobbly, too. It's like we can't go wobbly because we've got a guy right there on the border, very, very aggressive. Uh, And if he goes to Ukraine, we could be next. Is that kind of thing even among the European people or decision makers, that kind of fear? Sorry for the long question, Andrea, but just had to set it up. Uh, uh, Justina, I mentioned Alexandria. I know you were just there, so I thought you would.
3: Yes, but you mentioned also Poland. Uh, yeah. So I will try uh, to answer. And of course, uh, you're right. There is this fear that uh, if Ukraine falls, Poland, Baltic states, uh, Eastern Plan countries might be next uh, uh, in a couple of years. But uh, w- if the scenario materialized that uh, the U.S. Uh, will uh, diminish significantly or stop its military support for Ukraine, I think we will be... Um, and much troubles as Europe and as Eastern flank. And we will be presented with serious dilemmas. Because on the other hand, of course, you will have voices and you will have considerations talking that we need to double our efforts to uh, deliver military equipment to Ukraine, ammunition, fuel. But on the other hand, you know, during this year and a half, Poland has given away significant amount of its own operational capabilities. It has given uh, uh, military equipment uh, from the units. And uh, uh, so we will be presented with a dilemma whether to uh, strengthen our own military, meaning replenishment first, the equipment, and then on the top of of it, increasing the military capabilities or uh, setting everything on the one card and uh, helping Ukraine as much as possible together with uh, with other Western Europeans. And this will be a huge dilemma for us uh, uh, um, uh, if that materialized, because then you have the priority to secure your own country. And then the other a uh, uh, hugely important goal to help Ukraine survive and man- maintain itself on the front. And uh, that will, hu- I think that political decision in Poland, which hugely depend on Western Europe, whether Western Europe will double, double or triple its uh, efforts to arm Ukraine so that jointly as Europe, we will be able to sustain ukraine so that not on, not only this burden is on the polish baltic or Nord- nordic sh- shoulders because we will not be carry uh, that on for for long uh, and this will conflict with uh, uh the priorities to secure um our own uh or, or to, to increase our own security um and that will be also publicly uh very controversially dis- uh, discussed so Uh, we will have um, a a very, um, a discussion, uh, a controversial one, and much will depend on Germany, on France and uh, on UK.
4: Right. Thank you. I I think the threat perception changes the further you go west. I don't know if Tau agrees with me, but I mean, even in Germany, the threat perception is not existential to Germany's borders there's a threat perception to the alliance but there's not the perception germany's borders are threatened and that 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 makes a difference and i think what tower has mentioned sort of there's also a risk with a kind of conflation with israel palestine that i would see um, because what we see is that on the one hand, we have also from the U.S. side, a strong link between Israel and Ukraine, arguing that you know both countries are fighting against being annihilated um, from a neighbor and so on. But on the other side, Russia is pushing very strongly this narrative about Western devil standards in Ukraine and in Israel. And by that, they're actually very successful in undermining Western legitimacy, Um, already now, (laughs) already a few weeks after the the Hamas terrorist attacks. And I fear that that conflation and that strong linkage between Ukraine and Israel might at some point backfire because for the West and for to make the case to some parts of the global South, it was easy to argue, well, this is a border in Ukraine which has been overstepped. But if the whole Western legitimacy is undermined, and at the same time in terms of capabilities, the West is not able to mount another mountain of steel for a new counteroffensive next year, then sort of both the narrative and the capability side um, are sort of under pressure. And the question what the end game is, is still not answered. And uh, it's not a question which is only pushed forward by radical Republicans. It's a legitimate question that also European populations are asking, how how long is this going to, to take? And what is your scenario there after this year we had this unfortunate messaging of, oh, just until the end of the year and then there's Christmas and we'll have negotiations and everything will be over. So this this end game um backfired, but we don't have a clear narrative of a new end game together with 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 Israel-Palestine with capabilities. So I think that that makes an even darker picture, not even about threat perception, but also about the wider context. Right.
0: Tara, you can, I know, chime in on that, but just to add one little bit to the question in in terms of this prioritization that Justina was talking about, to your own defense versus the defense of another country. Now you have the uh, Israel-Hamas conflict, but Europe has also seen the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict where Azerbaijan has taken by force this enclave and the flare-up of tensions between Serbia and Kosovo. And so I wonder then, like from politics, what what does what's your sense of how Europe is looking at this new environment, and is there this realization of of just how complex and 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 the very significant demands that could be put on all of us in the coming years?
2: Absolutely, I I was going to get to that because I think that the unity and, and the effort that we saw Europe put in maintaining its unity uh, both intra-European but also uh, with the transatlantic ally, we haven't seen that same kind of effort and and honestly success, whether it's in Nagorno-Karabakh, of course Israel-Palestine, we're seeing uh, a level of division, incoherence, incohesiveness between Europeans and I'm not just talking about member states and their leaders here but even between uh, the leaders of the European institutions themselves and so the picture that we see certainly of trying to build a common European foreign policy in its immediate neighborhood is, is um, you know, a, it's almost non-existent. And so that scares me a lot because it does seem that a lot of the energy and capacities of Europe has been put uh, into uh, the war that Russia has been waging on Ukraine for the past 18, almost two years now but we don't seem to have the same kind of capacities for the rest of our neighborhood uh, and i'm not talking again about very far away places we're talking about immediate european neighborhoods with immediate european interest immediate european trade i mean uh, and we're not capable of putting this together for a variety of reasons this is ju- not just new but it does scare me again in a context where the us will pr- might push us a bit more to do more on our own you know i also have to acknowledge that the eu has done quite it's been trying to anticipate on long-term scenarios. And so we saw Germany and France uh, sign contracts with a number of Ukrainian firms to build also missiles and weapons on Ukrainian soil directly, both to foster Ukrainian defense industrial bases, but also to basically have true um, long-term defense industrial cooperation with a country that might probably join the EU at some point. So we're seeing some form of anticipation and work going through again that I don't think I would have anticipated before, but we're talking about 10 to 15 year projects right now. Both Justina and Liana have spoken to the weapon stop depletion that we're seeing now. This is like in the very immediate future. And I don't think we have a solution to that. This is a situation that is true in the U.S. It's very true in Europe. And, and this is also where our rivals are going to see what which choice do we make? Do we make the choice of protecting our own national uh, security? Or do we think of our national security as protecting our own territory, the European territory, and a potential incoming EU member state? It's going to be very hard to make the case. I mean, I think a number of leaders are trying to do it, but the question is how do we manage as europeans to make this case in the long term for our populations and i actually wanted to ask this to justina how how this shift basically in in polish politics is going to affect this question is it going to be only about the national dimension or is it going to be also i mean is it going to be that the national dimension cannot be separated from the european dimension
1: mm-hmm. justina
2: yeah
3: I think that uh, the, uh, it, it's difficult for me to uh, to talk what policies the incoming government will have on that. Uh, but I think that um, from Polish perspective, the uh, Russian war in Ukraine will be always a priority also for the incoming government. Uh, and this dilemma I was talking about um, is uh, about helping Ukraine uh, to maintain itself um or um, securing uh, or strengthening own military capabilities uh, because if uh, uh, internally within Europe, we won't agree on or we will not increase our effort uh, to support Ukraine, Ukraine will fail this way or another. And in that case, I think the um, the majority of the political elites, uh, and of the population think that we will sooner or, or later war will come to us and russia will attack uh um, um uh, this or that uh, nato eastern plan country uh so therefore this um this dilemma will be so um so important and so uh, uh so um i will try to Tie apart um, uh, the the here parties and uh, and uh, uh, discuss uh, people d- discussing uh, this issue. Uh, so this will will always will be the priority number one for Poland because uh, the war in Ukraine is seen as something uh, that directly. Um, will influence us in uh, in the future, uh, and, uh, depending on, on the outcome. With regard to Serbia, Kosovo tensions, with regard to Armenia, Azerbaijan, uh, I think the, all, these regions are also important from the Polish perspective, and from, uh, from uh, our perspective, the European Union should uh, engage uh, in uh, more um, uh, in order to secure peace uh, for Armenia, to secure Armenia and we, uh, uh, Armenian government, to secure peace in uh, Western Balkans, uh, because all there, Russia. Is an actor, and Russia tries to undermine security in the closest European neighbourhood. And this is doable with much lesser effort effort that we are um, we are having uh, in case uh, in case of Ukraine. So political will, understanding uh, is needed. Uh, but now we are all, we have also the Israel Gaza um, uh, uh, conflict, and this distracts a lot of member states. Uh, from uh, um, Russia-Ukraine war and from this minor, from their perspective, uh, conflicts crisis uh, in the closest neighborhood. Um, So I hope uh, we will be able to to come together and think more strategically about these issues if the negative scenario about the U.S. materializes.
2: Thanks a lot. I realized that I didn't answer Andrea's question about France itself, (laughs) so I'll get back to that quickly. Uh, And in a way, it it totally ties into what Justina was saying. So, for instance, France signed a special defense cooperation agreement with Armenia, which is a bilateral issue. Um, France has seen, in the wake of the Israel-Palestine conflict flaring back up, a huge division in, in political terms that we hadn't really seen when it came to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. We saw on the far left and the far right parties that traditionally supported Russia, but in the backdrop of generally the French population supporting the effort to Ukraine, their voices were a lot more prudent vis-à-vis their their previous pro-Russia stance. On Israel-Palestine, we've actually seen a total division uh, of French society, particularly on the left parties that had formed a a domestic political alliance, uh, center-left, far-left, being in complete disagreement over what to do uh, in Israel-Palestine. And we see a bit of a replication of that in Europe, too. And so what I've seen also over the weekend are an increasing number of European commentators saying, well, you know, if Europeans are so divided on Israel-Palestine, maybe we should just give up completely on the idea of a a common European foreign policy and leave it to the member states. And um, I guess as a fairly young European, I was really shocked by this thinking. Well, of course, you know, that really served us very well recently in European history to focus only on member states. The whole point of the European Union is that we're supposed to try to overcome, ideally succeed to overcome these differences, but we know where we come from. And yes, it is easy to resort to our kind of natural instinct to say, well, you know, cooperation is so difficult and getting to agree on a consensus is also so difficult. Let's just let member states deal with this. Member states individually cannot do anything about it. And whatever the outcome of the Israel Palestine conflict, it's going to have a repercussion on uh, Russia's war on Ukraine and it's going to have a huge repercussions on European security. How can we believe that the EU doesn't have a role to play? Yes, it's frustrating and desperating to see how European leaders have behaved right now. I really think it's they're not, you know, they're not owning to their responsibilities, but there is also a responsibility for us as citizens and as observers of this to ask them to do more and to do better and not just to give up. And I really wanted to say this because I think it's our whole security that's at stake. If we give up on trying to do something about Israel-Palestine, then why wouldn't we give up uh, about doing something, you know, on Russia's invasion of Ukraine? That's just, you, you can just continue it like this. I think we really need to fight back against this narrative. Um, because it's dangerous for everyone.
4: And I also feel, I mean, I'm at least, I'm so tired by all these op-eds and articles immediately calling sort of the funeral of EU foreign and security policy, right? I mean, every time there's a crisis where the EU doesn't perform well, it's like immediately the end of all of it. And I mean, I think it's fair to say, that of course it's easier to have a joint European position under US leadership, right? (laughs) But that doesn't mean that this is another test case where the EU will never have a joint and common European foreign security policy. So I think sometimes it's also overstated. I just wanted to throw in one sentence because Justina and I have discussed this last week. I think there's also a lot of expectations that a new German-Polish motor, even the famous Weimar Triangle, the German-Polish-French cooperation. Which we have
0: represented.
4: Exactly, which is like the pet project of all think tankers. All think tankers love it. Um, I think we have to be careful not to overstate expectations for that um, because obviously the sort of the entire atmosphere will be better in German Polish relations and European Polish relations. Um, But but as Justina told me last week, I think it's very true, it doesn't mean that the serious differences that there are in the relationship about threat perceptions and so on will go away. So sometimes I feel there's hope that you know, the Polish elections will turn around everything. And from now on, Europe will assume this leadership role and I think we have to be careful that the three European musketeers, as um, uh, can cannot save the day if the interests are just 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 different in some areas.
0: But I want to build on that. And I guess it gets to the question of what will Europe's reaction be to weakness or wobbliness in the United States? And I guess, I mean, the three of you have spent a lot of time talking and thinking and analyzing and informing people about European sovereignty. And I guess from a U.S. perspective, you might look at this moment and you might say, well, you've got a war in the heart of Europe, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. You now have a Middle East that with a conflict that could widen and severely distract the United States. You've got these flare ups in Nagorno-Karabakh and the flare up between Serbia and Kosovo and in the United States an aging leader and or, you know, a potential Republican candidate who's having legal trouble. Um, And if he is the winner of our election, someone who, you know, is very likely to significantly downgrade at least the importance he places on the transatlantic relationship, if not significantly reduce funding for ukraine and other things. so if there were a moment for europe to step up and invest and do more for its own security and defense wouldn't this be the moment? and i i wonder like how, how are those the discussions that are being held in European capitals. I mean, how are European leaders talking to their publics? Are I mean, it's been a criticism that we've all had of the United States that until the, the President Biden addressed the American public on Israel and Ukraine, it's been a very long time since we've heard from our commander-in-chief and our leader about the nature of the world that we live in and why these conflicts are important to Americans. But are European leaders doing any better? Are they talking to their publics and framing these issues so that people understand these, the, the, I don't know, the changes that we're living through and the in the growing complexity and, and dangers of the international environment that
2: we're in. So maybe I can jump in as the French uh, online in a country where there is very rarely talk, uh, at least public talk, about foreign policy and foreign policy decision-making is in the hands of a very few people. Uh, this debate is not happening right now. I do think Macron will want to say something because I feel like as we approach the second anniversary of the war, and it doesn't seem likely that uh, Ukraine will have a decisive victory by February 24th, uh, 2024, there will have to be a discussion. That will be a psychological effect, I think, on European populations of going into the second anniversary and what it means in terms of the long-term sustainability, durability of European support to Ukraine. And what I've seen, and I do think that Europeans uh, are going to basically adopt, I think, the same rhetoric is that uh, a few days ago, the Biden administration said, well, we need to change tack in, um, as of how we explain our involvement in Ukraine to the American public and say that by bolstering uh, the Ukraine and the American uh, defense industrial base, we'll be actually um, building, uh, creating new jobs, building growth into the U.S. Yes, we're going to be helping Ukraine, but this will have a very positive effect uh, for the European population. And it speaks to one of uh, the Biden campaigns in 2020s. Objectives, which was to build a foreign policy for the middle class, and to try and tell people, well, actually, yes, we're involved in places in the world that seem very far away, but how we're involved actually has a direct consequences, has a direct consequence on uh, your capacity to have a job, your capacity to earn more money, your purchasing power. Very micro, but also concrete examples of how foreign policy gets into people's uh, houses. I do think European leaders are going to have to adopt the same kind of rhetoric at some point. I don't know how how positive it will be, but there will be a sense. Uh, that there's going to be an investment in Ukraine, whether it's on the defense industrial base, but more generally in terms of the reconstruction efforts as well, that, yes, are going, of course, to benefit Ukraine, but they're also going to benefit a number of the countries who are providing some of the aid. And I think we're going to see a bit of this rhetoric, which also, you know, uh, has... It may have a bit of of danger in the sustainability of it, because at some point people will say, okay, you know, how long is it going to take for me to actually see this job that you're talking about in in terms of helping Ukraine? And if we're doing this for Ukraine, then why not do it with another foreign policy priority? So I think, you know, this does include a number of risks, but we see this this changing uh, rhetoric a little bit. I don't know how successful it will be in the US, and I, I hope it will be a bit successful in Europe. We see in Europe, you know, the numbers are holding for now in terms of the general public support to, to uh, helping Ukraine. I think the sense that the fates of Ukraine and Europe are intertwined is something that's shared by a lot of people, because also there's an obvious geographical dimension. I mean, in the case of, of Justina, Poland, the Baltic States, the, the border is right there. But I would say Uh, Liana is absolutely right. I don't think in France either there is a sense of an existential threat from Russia in terms of Russia invading France. But there is a sense now that we have done a lot for Ukraine and that we've said that we would do a lot. So why would we suddenly stop? I mean, it would be a, a, a total inconsistency to suddenly decide that we're not going to do as much. We said that we would be there as long as it takes. And we're saying now that Ukraine is Let's see what happens at the December 20, 2023 European Council. But it does seem likely that uh, we're going to get into accession talks with Ukraine for for getting into the EU. So we're talking about these also very concrete steps. Um, but it, it's going to take time. I don't think that uh, you, I don't think my leader is doing it enough like in the presence of my country. I do think they'll have to do it more because there'll be more and more questions, certainly as we approach the second anniversary of the war.
0: Yeah, for the U.S., though, that as long as it takes is really a narrative that I don't think anyone is a fan of anymore and no one wants to hear. And Liana, it goes back to your point at the beginning, which is now there's much more demand for, well, what's the plan? Like, you know, the, the we get back to the tell me how this ends piece of it. And so there's a lot of frustration. But Justina and Liana, do you want to pick up in terms of your sense of how, I don't know, that the Berlin is talking and, and Warsaw to, to the public? And are they framing these issues adequately?
3: Um, I may start. Uh, I think um, maybe I can Poland, Eastern flank countries um, uh, is a, this is a different story in my opinion. I think uh, here on the eastern flank there is a conviction that we are we have entered basically an era of confrontation. A confrontation coming both from Russia that wants to undermine the European security order, um, not uh, only subordinate uh, Ukraine, but generally weaken or undermine NATO, weaken the EU. Uh, and China is willing to do, do the same. Iran and the Middle East is uh, uh, do, doing the same in terms of uh, regional uh, security order.
0: And so I, know I think the Baltic connector story is really fascinating from the China perspective. And I know we, there's right. a lot that we yeah. don't know, but yes, right. just to reinforce your point, Justina.
3: So I think that on the eastern flank, we do understand what is at stake. And I think the numbers uh, or the defense expenditure here that is... Around three percent and uh, and beyond, with Poland spending three point nine percent this year for defense, and uh, I'm not, I don't think that will change with the new the new government, is a sign that we are treating the situation we are right now in very uh, very. Um, um, uh, as, a, as, a, as a very difficult one and potentially uh, potentially affecting negatively uh, our own uh, uh, basic security. But uh, with regard to Western Europe, I think many in Poland uh, and uh, in the Baltic states have the impression that uh, Western Europe wants uh, to... Um, to d- doesn't want to acknowledge the realities we, we are right now in, doesn't want to go into this era or acknowledge this era of confrontation, doesn't want or have uh, still uh, the delusion that we can make some kind of deal with Putin over Ukraine and then uh, we we will solve solve uh, the uh, all the issues and a European security uh, order uh, will be somehow rescued that China, um uh, is uh, of course a problem but somehow we can manage uh, not to enter this us uh, china uh, chinese confrontation and uh, then economic problems recession and germany social problems uh, and so on add to that um, not allowing uh, for uh, for large and uh, much more substantial increases for defense spending that would we uh, we would need to see. But uh, so I think that um, Europe is not prepared for what might come uh, and for negative scenarios uh, linked with the U.S. Uh, elections. Uh, but it might be a second wake-up call. A Titan vendor uh, 2.0. Because uh, if uh, the support from the US will dry out, then we will face either a fall of Ukraine and Russians uh, uh, coming to the Polish Ukrainian border, basically, or we will have to step in and uh, finally increase uh, our our industrial uh, capacities and uh, double, triple the effort to to help uh, Ukraine. Um, And it will be really difficult for the European publics as much as they are wary of the war and uh, don't want to, uh, or want uh, some kind of an end state and and a peace solution, uh, to face such a development of events? Because I don't believe in any peace negotiations with Russia, uh, show, uh, seeing what is seeing in the US and all the problems with the, with the Western support for Ukraine. It, Russia will not be willing to go into peace negotiations. Russia will uh, would like to take it all um, and, and seize Kiev in such a scenario. And are we able to allow it? As Europeans, are we able to allow more death, more killings, more torture in Ukraine at at our uh, uh, at uh, at our border? And right. if we can allow that, well, that, that we will be in a in a really bad bad shape as Europe.
1: And we will be too, because we're linked to you through NATO. So this is uh, this is big for us too, and I don't think a lot of us realize that. Just a remark. But Liana. Yeah.
4: Yeah, no, I just wanted to be very quick on Germany. Um, Olaf Scholz is not an explainer of foreign policy. <laughs> He's certainly not the one for the great creative Macron method foreign policy speeches. <laughs> um, but there's an upside to that. I don't think the domestic argument works so well in Germany to say, well, look, it's good for our defense industrial base because Germans immediately think, oh my God, militarization of society. And so that's that's that's. I'm not sure if that would work. But there's a the thing with Germans, I mean, they might be slow, but once they start, they are steady and reliability is a huge value. I mean, being a reliable foreign policy actor is sort of kind of something that, that, that Germans would brace themselves to be. So I think in a situation of crisis where things are sort of changing, I would assume that that's something that Charles could play to, to say, well, we've been criticized so often in the past, but we now have, there will not be a major increase. I would expect that um, there will not be surprise new announcements, but there will be a continuity and reliability um, and I think the other upside is sort of that on the EU level, there are already sort of multi-year budgets committed to Ukraine, which is why sort of the Europeans are actually doing quite well on the Ukraine tracker now. But I think that's something that um, that Germany has also committed to, to multi-year support for Ukraine, which helps to at least keep up the support, not to increase it, but at least to have a reliable flow to, to keep Ukraine afloat as good as it can with with without others or the United States.
2: Can I you know, just add here?
4: Yeah, sorry. please, please go.
2: Very quickly, I think one of the things that Europeans need to do, which is going to be both a complicated and simple exercise, is to see what they need uh, for their Article 42.7, which is the solidarity article in the Treaty on European Union, how to make this Article 42.7 actionable. So basically drawing up a list of everything Europe needs to ensure its security and the security of its external borders and of its partners and allies. I think the thinking for a long time has been that the idea of redundancy or duplication was actually going to undermine European efforts. I think in this case, and what we've seen since the beginning of Russia's Russia's invasion of Ukraine, is that actually, thank God there was redundancy, because we were able to, to provide Ukraine... with with twice as much weapons as uh, we could have. I mean, we wouldn't have been able to do that if we didn't have this redundancy. So I think we need to construct this. And I think that works in both scenarios for us, whatever happens in 2024 in the US presidential elections. If it's, uh, you know, if if the winner of the election is someone who's antagonistic to Europeans and sees the European Union as a foe, as we've seen in the past and doesn't like military alliances, then the Europeans will have started at least to think about building more capacity. If we, at reverse or contrary to this, get a president which is actually... Right. you know, more mindful of what, how we can do things uh, in a transatlantic partnership than it is certainly in their interest to have more capable Europeans too. I think this works in both scenarios and it's actually necessary for Europeans, but it's going to be a very long list of what Europeans will need to do to make this article 42.7 actionable.
1: You know, that's a really interesting, the 42.7, that's that's uh, that's an interesting point about that maybe that's going to be the, the, um, the trigger that uh, has Europe come together and begin to make that list and, and work on it. But I guess that's kind of my question too, is, um, you know, we talk about the U.S. going wobbly or the and the U.S. not providing assistance, et cetera. But when you really think about it, I'm not sure what that looks like in terms of a trigger. And in other words, when will Europe know that the U.S. is beginning to really back out of supporting Ukraine? I say that because I think it's going to come kind of slowly uh, if it comes uh in other words we're seeing right now there's a the package is on the hill now of, of an assistance you know and i think eventually that will pass but it's going to take longer than it has in the past there's going to be more rhetoric and more debate about it on the hill they might even nick it a little bit you know and make it a bit of a smaller package they'll they will like a christmas tree they're going to dangle all kinds of bobbles on it like we want an inspector general and we want to be able to see where these this equipment goes. And they're going to try to pretend like, you know, they're really concerned about money and this kind of thing. But, you know, uh, but that's not necessarily a trigger for Europe to go, oh, my God, the U.S. is going wobbly. We got that. That's just some of our politics. And so as the as the months come along and we're dealing with these have the House of Representatives, and we get into the presidential campaign. We're going to see a lot of things that's going to make it sound like we're going wobbly, and the money will be slower to show up because it's going to be weaponized in the campaign. But that doesn't mean, to me at least, that would that should trigger worry in Europe that the U.S. is backing out. It's just our politics, uh, and at the end of the day, you know we're, you know we're. I think we're the, the the assistance will continue. I, but I, I. but but in saying that, though, if there's a trigger, it would be Trump being elected, I guess. That's the big trigger. Uh, and even then, who knows? Trump might surprise us all and, and continue the assistance. I mean, I don't know. So for me, that's what for, if I were a European decision maker, when do I when do I say we got to double down because the Americans have left the battlefield here? You know, when it's not going to be really that apparent. The big signal, I think, certainly would be Trump. But uh, but that's not 100 percent guarantee. But I but it's just um, and it's not as easy as it was a year ago. The money flow and, you know, this kind of thing is going to be more, you know, the turbulent. But that doesn't mean that it's not going to come. So for me, it's just trying to define U.S. wobbliness to the extent where European nations are going to need to have that big debate
4: uh, about. So where do we go from here? Does that make sense? I think this debate should have taken place yesterday, Jim, because. Honestly, so I I feel sort of European delegations coming to Washington in the last year, half a year, have always been told, look, it's the majority of Republicans that support it, right? So this, this, this idea that there is a strong layer of stability and continuity in U.S. politics, I feel, at least from my perception, has been disrupted by the latest events around Kevin McCarthy, which no one foresaw So uh, I think one can tell Europeans, and that's what's happened in the last years, that, you know, there will be continuity. There are always elements of continuity in foreign policy, even if Trump come in. I mean, who knows if another adult will not be able to sneak into the room and to somehow constrain him. But I do think it's um, it's dangerous for Europeans to rely on that and to rely on this message because these disruptive elements in US foreign policy come up again and again. And so I think it's better to be prepared early and to be then to um, tempt Europeans to give themselves into this kind of feeling of, well, perhaps everything will not be as bad. And I've heard from Berlin, well, it's just another four years, even if Trump is elected, um, it's not just another four years, and it's not the same f- four years as the first four years. So I would rather, at the moment, especially after what has happened in Congress, I would feel more comfortable spooking Europeans to make them sort of move faster, right? sort of cloaking them into this feeling, oh, you know, it's not, it's bad, but it's not that bad. And there are still elements of stability because, again, there are also very strong elements of disruption. It's hedging. It's like Europeans
1: need to begin hedging now. Uh, Whether or not, you know, the funding is going to come smoothly or not, we we need to hedge just because of the nature of U.S. politics in this day and into the future. Uh, If Europe can, it needs to hedge. Uh, And that means doing more at home in terms of uh, not just restoring the stores, as Justine was talking about, but doubling down on assistance to Ukraine uh, as a hedge against the U.S. potentially pulling out just by the nature of its politics.
0: I think the other, I mean, thing, you know, it, it's a, is a little bit um, difficult to navigate. I mean, I I can't. It's getting increasingly difficult for me to imagine a scenario in which the United States increases its aid and assistance, mm-hmm. where you know, where there's another big major push. There was a big push earlier this year ahead of the counteroffensive, where there was kind of a. A coming together of a lot of military assistance to prepare the Ukrainians for the counteroffensive. It's getting harder for me to imagine that period again from the United States. And so I guess for for the European colleagues, if the even if the United States doesn't go wobbly and we just talk about kind of a, a slow, steady maintenance of support, that's not going to get the job done either. And so in that world, is there a scenario in which you could imagine the Europeans? I mean, the Ukrainians can't fight this war forever. Like they will have manpower issues or all of the people who are being killed and all the damage and destruction, a long war will really hurt Ukraine. And so I wonder if you can imagine a world in which there's a renewed sense of urgency to make another push um, to help Ukraine on the battlefield and whether or not that's winning militarily, or at least as the United States says, helping them on the battlefield so they can translate that into a stronger position at the negotiating table. But can you you imagine that world where there's another resurgence of support and where there's some urgency for another major push? Um, I think I can. And this is Ukraine losing
3: on the front russian gaining teritor- territorial gains i think that will be a moment when the with the european uh, with the us uh, report uh, um, support um slowing down then that would be a wake up call for for europe uh so i see this as a as a trigger for more support from 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 the european side so the situation on the ground in ukraine because um somehow I, following the, the, these discussions that we have uh, and uh, about burden sharing uh, with regard to support for Ukraine but also with regard to uh, to strengthening military capabilities and, and building European pillar and NATO, I think Western Europe especially needs a second crisis or uh, you know being it needs to be confronted. Uh, with a situation that pushes the, the Western European leaders to do more, unfortunately. And uh, with uh, in case of Ukraine, that might be um, a changing situation on the front to the detriment of Ukraine.
0: Any other final thoughts on how to, like, is there a world in which we see a really an uptick in support in another major push to help Ukraine to
2: end this? I think, I mean, Europeans need to do more regardless in a way of what happens. I think as long as we haven't understood that, as, as long as this isn't clear, Justina is absolutely right. If there is something on the front lines that changes dramatically the situation, I hope that Western European countries in particular would, would react. But I, I, my hope is that we would do more, not contingent on what's happening. We will do more because we need to do more. And in doing more, we're also... A better ally to the US and it makes more sense for us to do more for our own security. I I think you know we're trying to make this this argument, it's not always successful, but I, I hope that we would do it regardless also of what happens in the US, as I said. I mean, yes, that I think um Jim is right. I don't think you know it's it's not just about Trump. There's a, a general tendency also of what the US is doing, and it's going and, and we look at the trend of what is happening in a way. The new Speaker of the House also provides a new element in this trend. And so we have to see this and take 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 up, the, with, you know, deal with the consequences of it and draw our own conclusions. But I hope that our conclusions in any case would be that we would need to do more because we're right now so far away from where Europe needs to be for itself and for Ukraine that we really have no other choice.
0: Last word is yours, Liana. Just
4: throwing in another something
0: really smart to
4: (laughs) (laughs) let me just say something dangerous. Another missile going astray on Polish territory continuously, which can be interpreted as a Russian provocation and not as you know Ukrainian air defense uh, mistake. Um, And that sort of not once when because so far NATO has always been so careful to quickly calm down anything that sort of flew a little bit too far. Um, but something which is obviously designed as a provocation um, from the Russian side, sort of assuming that NATO will not react to that. Um, So a couple of missiles sort of um, provocatively going astray in a couple of weeks is certainly something which could um, make Europeans uh, become nervous again, just for the fact that if it really goes wrong, they would have to, to join in. So, yeah.
0: Well, we didn't end on quite an optimistic note, but I'm going to maybe bring it back to the beginning of where you all started, which was the political will story, at least at the beginning, which was not as gloomy as I think we often make it out to be here in Washington. So I'm just trying to bring it back to that point, because you all did, make quite a compelling case about kind of Europe is holding. Um, And so I think we will leave listeners on that slightly more optimistic thought, notwithstanding all of the challenges that we've all laid out. But again, um, I very much appreciate the three of you. I love the Weimar Triangle composition of this discussion. I just think it's always so insightful. And so I'm looking forward to the next time we can do it. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thank
4: thank you so much. Absolutely the same here.
0: Thank you for listening to another episode of Brussels Sprouts brought to you by the Transatlantic Security Team at the Center for a New American Security. You can find all of our previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And please remember to rate and review Brussels Sprouts so that new listeners are able to find the show.